Oh, did somebody get me water? Yeah. Okay. Hey, mercy. I got two pairs of gloves in the mail. Would you like one of these, blue or green? Green? Okay. There you go. You're welcome. Seems eleven.
Good morning. Good morning. Nice to see some old faces. Well, not old, but familiar <laughs> faces back. I don't want to get in trouble first thing in the morning. Um, just looking at a couple of announcements. Uh, again, you're offering envelopes to the offering box because uh, the deacons are doing the counting. Andrea's our contact for our, our prayer chain and prayer requests. Uh, as you see this, the days of praise and acts and facts are festooned around the, the pe uh, pews and in the in the lobby area. So, uh, church would like to extend its its uh, thanks for the group that showed up yesterday to do the decorations. They did a wonderful job, and we had a lot of kids involved, and that was just such a blessing to see that. You know. Many hands at work. So, and don't forget uh, also the uh, we have a booklet that we need to have signed for for those that need to update your phone numbers and addresses and, and such. Uh, one one message that's not in the bulletin today is Vicki Lilly. Uh, is she still in Lapeer Hospital? Yes. She's still in Lapeer Hospital. She had surgery for a bowel obstruction. So. Keep Vicky in your prayers. So, uh, the sound people is yakking at me or the sound director? I think it's to me. Okay. I'll let you two go at it then. Our um, scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Psalm 119, verses 1 through 16. And that's page 957 in your pew Bible.
one further announcement is our communion service is going to be postponed until next Sunday. So, would you stand with us, please, as we begin our service with opening prayer? Dale, would you lead us in prayer? remain standing. Will you take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 319, 319 in the brown. This morning, have a stipulation on your favorite hymn. It has to be a Christmas hymn. It's December now. 
I see her. <laughs> All right. First hand was Naomi. She was, do you have a Christmas hymn, Naomi? One, three, two. Angels we have heard on high. All right. Is this your favorite or just one you wanted to sing? <laughs> All right. I love this one. Thank you. Would you stand with us as we take our scripture reading from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, 17 through 34, page 1784. 
representatives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I, shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord, which I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat his bread and drink this cup, this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. May the Lord add his blessing to that holy and inspired scripture. Please remain standing. Take your brown hymnal once again and turn to number 131. <clears throat> 131. Oh. 
we're happy to announce that we have a special this morning. Wednesday night, Anna was, Hannah was asked to sing by a few <laughs> that were here. <laughs> so this is her fulfilling her word because she promised she would sing. I'm going to take this off to sing, though. I'll take it off. Okay. Yeah, I'm all right. I was having a hard time breathing today.
think so. <clears throat> Our scripture text this morning is 1 Corinthians 11. Doing this little mini-series on worship. Today I want to talk about worship through the ordinances. Next week we'll have more uh, traditional message on Christmas. <clears throat> so stay tuned for that. By the way, thanks to all the people that showed up the other day, decorated the building, looks very festive. I'm very thankful for that. Um, this is our holiday. Just remember that. Christmas is the Christian's holiday. We celebrate the birth of Christ, the coming of Christ, and Advent in particular, and <clears throat> the coming of the Holy Spirit into our lives to change our lives. And we're not so much interested in the presence and all of those things, but we're interested in the great gift that God gave to us in the birth of his son and the son that became the savior of the of his people we praise the lord for that 
In studying the subject of worship, we have considered how prayer to God is a form of worship. We learned that everyone prays, even atheists pray, especially when they sense imminent danger to their person or their family. Prayer is an expression of dependence, an admission that we need or want divine intervention in our lives. Where we were born, how we are to live, we pray about all those things, physical capabilities or lack thereof, daily sustenance, we pray for those things as well, we pray for others. And we pray for our great need for forgiveness because we know that in a sinful world we are spiritually bankrupt. We pointed out how we worship God through prayer. Communal prayer. We appeal to God to listen to the collective agreement of his people. And it's weighty because where two or more are gathered in Christ's name, there's an agreement on the request. There's also individual prayer, practically on every issue or circumstance of life, marriage, health, issues, timidity, loss of capabilities, the defeat of slanderers, and so on, the enemies of our soul. We pray about all those things. And then we talked about intercessory prayer of our spiritual leaders, Moses, Nehemiah, Daniel. We use them as examples. They all prayed about the spiritual poverty of their people, and they prayed for their people. He prayed for Israel. Israel beseeched God to be merciful and to restore faith and repentance to the people of God. Lots to pray about. We saw the prayer is worship through penitent prayer. The unbeliever and the believer alike pray for repentance, pray in repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Well, today I want to address the concept of worship through participation in the ordinances. And next Sunday, then, we'll talk about uh, the advent of Christ and so on. Observing the ordinances. What is an ordinance? Good question. God told Israel in the tent of meeting outside the curtain that is in front of the testimony, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening until morning. This is a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generations to come. Exodus 17, verse 21. It is a regulation prescribing worship of God having to do with illuminating of the lamps of the tabernacle. Again, put headbands on them and then tie sashes on Aaron and his sons. The priesthood is theirs by lasting ordinance. In this way you shall ordain Aaron and his son. Exodus 29.9. So there were Exodus. We have the ordinances of that day. Again in Leviticus. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Leviticus 16, verse 34. The Feast of Booths that 
you remember. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord your God for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths so that your descendants will know that I made the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 23, verse 41 and following. Now we could go on, but it's clear thus far that an ordinance is somewhat different from, let's say, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were and are a list of regulations that speak to the need of all men as creatures of God living under the standard of morality laid down by the Creator. They're not based on race or one sex or on nationality or on geographical location, that is, one's domicile or on one's history. No, no, the moral law is for all people on the planet for all times. Do they all recognize it? No. But it was given that as such. But, here we go. An ordinance has specific reference to God's people in relation to their personal history as it, resists, re, uh, as it relates to God. The ordinance for Aaron and his sons to keep the lamps burning in the tabernacle before the testimony, the testimony is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, is labeled a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generations to come. Exodus 27, verse 21. Just think about that. It's a lasting ordinance for the Israelites. What significance would such a rule have for the pagan nations of the world, even at that time, who had no tabernacle, and they did not worship God, the God of the Bible. Okay, what about the yearly celebration of living in booths for seven days? Leviticus 23.42 says, All native-born Israelites are to live in booths for this particular celebration. That was to commemorate the time when God rescued the people from Egypt and that servitude that was there, and he had them live in booths in the desert. You see, it had meaning to Israel, but not to anyone else. How does this hold true when we come to the New Testament to consider the ordinances that Christ laid down for his church? First observation is that the word ordinance or statute is not found in the New Testament, in the New Testament record, which is not the same as saying that prescribed practices are not found there. They are found there. It's just those words aren't used. Prescribed practice, that's what an ordinance is. It is a prescribed practice laid down as obligatory by a given authority. 
I think you're all familiar with various city ordinances, aren't you? City ordinance might say that they might have a no blight ordinance, which means that a city will not permit junk cars to sit in your front lawn or garbage piled up on the sidewalk or lawns with weeds two feet high because you didn't cut the grass. And yes, you can choose to ignore such city ordinances, but then you will be fined by the city or the city will clean up the blight for you and bill you the cost. In the spiritual realm, an ordinance receives its authority directly from Christ. Just as the Old Testament, Old Testament ordinances received their authority from Jehovah, speaking to or through his prophets. And these also are binding upon the followers of Christ. They carry an obligatory weight that cannot be dismissed without consequence. Okay. What are the ordinances of the new covenant? The day in which we live. The era in which we live. There are two. Baptism and the Lord's table. Baptism is an ordinance issued within the Great Commission. Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28 verse 19. Given to the apostles. Here is a command of something Christ wants done by his disciples. It's practiced by John the Baptist. We read John came, preaching in the desert region, and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Mark 1, verse 4 and 5. And John understood that there had to be sincerity and a genuine remorse for sin. I say that because we read, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Matthew 3, verse 7. He's accusing them of being snakes. <laughs> snakes going through the motions of repentance while they plotted against God's anointed, and that's why they were snakes. We know that John was the forerunner of Jesus, whose task, among other things, was to testify of Christ and his work. And so when speaking of baptism, it's not surprising to hear John explain. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Luke 3, verse 16. So, if we combine the two thoughts together, baptism as a rite and ordinance, pointing to the day of our repentance and forgiveness of sins, and to the time when our lives were transformed by the Holy Spirit by His 
coming upon us in purging fire. We have the connection to our past as Israel's ordinances were a reminder of the grace of God to their past. And then secondly, we have the Lord's table. Our text says, For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and following. I want you to observe that partaking of both the bread and the cup are commands issued first and foremost by Jesus himself, And now reiterated by Paul to the church of Corinth, whose conduct was less than stellar in this particular account. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 20. Paul says to them, he's writing to the Corinthians, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They might ask, now wait a minute, why do you say that, Paul? We gather to break bread together. We gather to drink the cup together. Of course, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. How can you say that? Paul's denial of such is because, verse verse 21, For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 21-22. The Corinthian church was following the pattern set by Christ the night his this ordinance was initiated. The pattern was a love feast, remember that, Passover celebration, followed by Jesus taking the bread and the cup and reading new meaning into them, the bread represented of his broken body, the cup of his shed blood, both of which were but hours away when he initiated these things. This was the pattern The Corinthian church followed, dinner first, then celebrating the Lord's table at the close of the meal. Good for them. They had the pattern down. But not so good. They did not have the practice down. At the meal, gluttony set in, as some ate their fill, while others remained hungry, verse 23, Others got drunk on what we now would call the communal wine. And so Paul was saying to them, You may think you're celebrating the Lord's Supper because you break bread, you drink the cup together, 
but with such willful sins as greediness and drunkenness, God does not approve of your worship. It's always the case, brethren, that true worship involves more, much more, than having the right elements in place, in this case bread and wine, and following the pattern observed by the Lord with his disciples. These activities in and of themselves say very little about worshiping Christ if you are doing these things in a ceremonial way, permeated with sin. It's kind of like an abusive husband that says to his wife, but I only hit you with my hands, I didn't use a bat. How stupid is that? God never looks simply at externals. He is always reading heart motives and heart actions. When Samuel began screening Jesse's many sons to anoint one of them, as the new king to replace Saul, we read, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. And he thought, hmm, surely the Lord's anointing stands before the Lord here. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things a man looks at, Man looks at the outward appearance, but Lord looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, verse 6 and 7. May I say that this is no less true even with those ordinances, those laws that God himself has prescribed for his people to worship him. And that's why in Isaiah chapter 1, we read, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's talking to Israel, his people. Look at look how he's labeling them. Sodom? Wow. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitudes of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. And when you come to appear before me, who has asked you of you, this trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary. Of bearing them. Isaiah 1 verses 10 through 14. We listen to this and we ask. Well, now wait a minute. How can God define these sacrifices. As meaningless offerings. And the Sabbaths. And the convocations. As evil assemblies. When it was God who commanded Israel to worship him with animal sacrifices on the Sabbaths and on the special, specific convocations. How can he do that? 
Well, it is again, brethren, this business of the heart. What was Israel's problem in Isaiah chapter 1? Let me read it for you. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, and though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Isaiah 1, verse 16 through 18. All is not well with Israel when Isaiah wrote this. Ask yourself, what good are sacrifices for sin if, while I offer the appropriate God-ordained animal sacrifices, I'm sinning against my neighbor, especially the widows, especially the orphans, who are vulnerable to exploitation? How does that compute? It is as though Israel was saying, well, well, don't look at that, Lord. Just, just look at the offerings I'm bringing. Just look at the fact that on the Sabbath I'm found in the assembly and worshiping you. Wow, what an insult to the integrity of God that he would accept externals that look the part while the internals belie anything genuine. What an insult as well to truly godly character that they, may I say we, would settle for going through the motions and calling it good. Brethren, you know, it, it, it is a scary, scary thing. To think of all the professing Christians in America who count externals as proof of genuine faith. What a surprise is coming when the judge will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, verse 41. Both practices of the New Testament, baptism by immersion, Partaking of the bread and cup at the Lord's table are given by Christ as ongoing ordinances whose perpetuity is determined by God himself. To cause us to remember. To remember. So that's my next point. Consider what the ordinances bring to our worship. What do they bring to our worship? Number one, remembrance. Verse 24, do this in remembrance of me, the bread. Or again, concerning the cup, verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The same would hold true when we think of the ordinance, the ordinances that Israel was given by God. The booze, for example, 
which were to be constructed and lived in for seven days a year, was so they would recall God's deliverance of them from Egyptian slavery and the quick but adequate housing God provided as necessary for their survival called a lasting ordinance. Remember how it was, you Israelites? You were slaves of the Egyptians, and then I released you. I brought you out with a great and mighty deliverance. And yeah, you had to live in booze in the wilderness because there were no permanent homes there. But you're to remember this, how I rescued you that day. The yearly offering on the Day of Atonement. The writer of Hebrews writes, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And for this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, it can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshiper would have been cleansed cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But... But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Hebrews 10, the first four verses. I I say here the reminder is negative. It's a negative. But it's an important negative. Namely, The animal sacrifices are only a shadow of the good things to come. So don't put your hope in them. They are deficient sacrifices that can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. But the great reality is when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, But a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, that's those animals again, you were not pleased. And then I said, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, O God. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 10. There is a sacrifice that actually uh, actually does obtain cleansing and forgiveness and reconciliation with God from sin. And it is so perfect, it is so stupendously unique that it and was and is offered only one time in all of history. It is so effective that once is all it takes to set sinners in a right state before God. And that's the sacrifice of the God-man, Jesus, who is God's lamb that takes away the sin of the world when men repent and believe. Now both, both, New Testament ordinances recall the cross work of Jesus. Baptism, what about that? 
Paul tells us the spiritual significance to all believers. What does baptism, what, what's that mean? Let me read it for you. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so with the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. Romans 6, verses 3 through 8. The ordinance of baptism by immersion symbolizes the salvation experience in time-space history. Crucified with Christ, death. Buried with Christ, the grave. Resurrected, coming out of the drowning pool of sin. A new person, breathing the air of a resuscitated soul that will live forever. All that is symbolized in believer's baptism. If the old you is dead and buried and the new you is alive in spirit and soul, then Paul's evaluation becomes our experience as well. What was his experience? I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, says Paul. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2 verse 20. If this is not you, then you're not saved. Plain and simple. God does not save people and then not change them by emancipating them from the chains of ongoing sin. Living becomes new. Living becomes an ongoing effort to please God in thought, word, and deed. Baptism reminds us of this. Buried with Christ. Yes, but resurrected to new life in Christ. That's the symbolism of baptism. Secondly, the Lord's table does the same thing. By concentrating on the actual sacrifice necessary for God to create us anew. There must be a stand-in sacrifice for your sin and my sin. And the law of God states, For every living soul belongs to me, the Father as well as the Son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one that's going to die. Ezekiel 18 verse 4. Is there any doubt as to who is a soul who sins? For the scripture says, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, verse 23. How people can, could ever get past this, I don't know. But somehow the devil has convinced them that 
They're not sinners, or at least not sinners enough to deserve the judgment of God. For all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. Now, if that were the end of the story, it would be a nightmare. The Apostle John put it this way, this is love. This is love. Not, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4.10 Or in the text, verse 24, the Lord Jesus broke the bread at the table and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And thereafter he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the sacrifice superior to the animals of the old covenant that we read about in the book of Hebrews. God does not want us to forget the stand-in work of his Son, being tortured for our sins, spit upon, mocked, ridiculed, finally executed in our place, so that like the repentant thief, we might live in paradise with the Lord. Don't forget it. God took the initiative to befriend us in Christ, who proclaimed, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command, John 15, verse 13 and 14, Christ laid down his life. For his friends. Now that means those who would become his friends. There's a scaled down replica of the memorial wall dedicated to those who lost their lives in the Vietnam War. 60,000 American soldiers in the Vietnam War. It's called a memorial wall. And it's portable enough to be transported by truck to various locales. And they set it up for people to come and see. And people, by the thousands, come wherever that wall is erected. And they come there for a specific purpose. And looking for the names of their loved one who gave his or her life in that way. They're all listed alphabetically so they can go down the wall and they can find the name of their relative. It serves the purpose of reminding our nation that freedom is not free. That all the soldiers defending our country do not come home alive. We should remember. We should not forget. We do not want to forget so great a sacrifice. So too, God does not want us to forget that a war rages for the souls of men, that we have an enemy, Satan 
who with himself would damn us all to hell's fire along with him. God wants us to remember that all will not come through the battle alive. But he has determined that all who have trusted Jesus, who went to hell and back and won the victory in resurrection, we find it, guarantees life everlasting to all who believe. So the ordinance calls us, remember, remember, don't forget. Don't forget. The ordinances call us to remember. Another thing the ordinances bring to us is thanksgiving and proclamation. Verse 26, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six. Let's also remember that the baptisms of the New Testament were very public as well. They were not done in secret. Both ordinances are whole church or oriented. They have no place in private displays. We don't baptize one person in a stream somewhere. We partake as a church. We rejoice as a church. We proclaim the gospel in our ordinances as a church. And we're careful to warn people, verse 27, whoever eats this bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Or verse 29, anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body and blood of the Lord, ESV says, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Well, what kind of judgment? Verse 30, the context. Some among you are weak and some among you are sick. Oh, and some among you are dead. That's judgment. Judged or disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. The world needs to hear a clear proclamation of Christ and his sacrificial work in the observance of the ordinances. They need to sense our thankfulness for saving grace. That's why we have testimonies on the Lord's Day when we have our communion service. Baptism is saying to the world, I died and I am a new person in Jesus Christ. I'm alive from the grave. I'm freed from sin's stranglehold. And the Lord's table is saying to the world, here's why. I am a changed person. Jesus took my sins upon himself. Jesus paid my debt by his broken body, by his shed blood. And he's letting me reap the benefits because I put my trust in him. I did not always love him. In fact, I was his enemy, as Paul says. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. 
since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God did it all. Came and sought us out. Drew us unto himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. Gave us a heart of faith to respond. gave us a heart of repentance to turn away from our sin. And salvation has come. That's something to be happy about, folks. That's something to rejoice in. Not just on Sunday mornings and worship service, but tomorrow morning and every day this week and every day of the month and every month of the year and every year that you live as a child of God brought into his kingdom by the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and thank you for so great a salvation. It is a great salvation. Thank you that you have accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. We praise you that you sought us out and drew us by the power of your Spirit. Faith is the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're not talking about human faith here. We're not talking about the kind of faith that says, oh, I have faith that if I sit on a chair, it's going to support me. No, that's not faith. That's knowledge. Because we've sat on a chair a thousand times and they always support us. But the faith that's supernatural believes in what God says when mankind doesn't believe God at all. When mankind thumbs its nose at, at God and hates God. Where do I get that? From Romans. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. That's our neighbors. That's our acquaintances. That's our relatives. We try to talk to them about what God has done for us in our lives. And they laugh and they sneer and they mock and they jeer and they have no time for the God of the Bible. And they will say things, oh Lord, like my God would never send anyone to hell. Well, that's because their God doesn't exist. But the God of the Bible is true. And he warns us that the reason Christ has come is to deliver us from hell's damnation and to plant our feet solidly upon the rock of himself and bring us into a right relationship with the creator. We destroyed that by our sin. You restored that through your great sacrifice. Thank you for that. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for searching us out. Thank you for not letting us go. Thank you for pulling us from the miry clay 
and granting to us life and faith and repentance and all the necessary graces to come to Jesus and to love him and to love God. For any here outside of that veil of comfort and protection, bring them to faith and repentance today that you might be glorified. Do it, Lord, for your glory and their good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, 286. We normally sing this hymn on a communion Sunday. But it's so appropriate no matter when. Let's stand together and sing. 286 in the brown hymn. The tie that binds, the cord that binds us together is our love of Christ and his love of us. It's called family. It's called family. The world is not the family of God. The church collective is not the family of God. There are many churches that the Bible calls the synagogues of Satan. We strive to preach the truth of the gospel that in Jesus Christ we're the family of God. And the Holy Spirit knits us together and makes us a family. Are there other families of God? Yes. Sure, we're not 
special in that sense, that we're alone. But for this little community, Thornville Church, we're the family of God here, this location. And we praise the Lord for that. Our Lord, we just thank you and praise you for the fact that you've drawn us together and each one of us has had the joy of <clears throat> learning of you. And the majority, Lord, of experiencing your grace and goodness, your forgiveness, your salvation. In that and for that, we give you great thanks. Help us to be appreciative not only on a Sunday morning, but throughout the week and the month and the days to come. And help us to testify of what it takes to be rightly related to God, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood. Help us, especially at this time of the year, when people of our country are searching well, maybe they're looking more for presents under the tree, but the greatest gift they need is the great gift of grace that comes through the power of the Spirit. So help us to be bold in our proclamation. At least at this time of the year, people will listen to the Christmas story. And it's a great opportunity to testify for Jesus. Help us to do that. We are concerned about our families. We love our kids, our children, our grandchildren, and so on and so forth. But we also think of our neighbors next door, our coworkers at work. The world needs to hear. How are they going to know anything? They don't read Bibles. Lord, help us to be the living Bible that they read. And may we give a true word in Christ's name and for his glory. We pray these things. Amen. We are dismissed.